Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Turn there if you're turning there or grab your handout. Psalm 147. Are there more handouts? There are, yes. No, Mike's got. All right. Well, we find ourselves in, you could call it, the closing doxology of the book of Psalms. Psalm 146 to Psalm 150 is all about praising the Lord. And it's a repeated theme to conclude the book. It's a fitting conclusion for the book of Psalms. We've seen throughout this whole book praising God in, for his blessings, for his goodness. We've seen uh, us, the psalmist praising God through difficulty and trial. We've seen him calling out with doubt and fear and, and difficult struggles. Um, and through them all, God is there. He is present. He is faithful. And uh, I just appreciate how the psalms capture every, every uh, stage of our lives, every situation that we might find ourselves in, every heart circumstance that we, that we come across. Uh, the psalms really flesh it out for us and show us how do we go to God uh, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our heart is feeling. And uh, as we conclude uh, to today and next week this book, I hope that uh, the lessons that we learn uh, go with us, that we have a heart that's praising God no matter what we're going through. Um, let me just pray quickly to ask God to guide us as we read it, and then we'll read Psalm 147 and then hear what you noticed uh, before we jump in. Let's, let's just pray and ask God to help us as we read. Lord, as we look into your revealed word, your inspired truth, um, help us to approach it reverently, that we are dealing with your words, uh, not, not man's, that we are dealing with um, truths that can change our very lives, that can change our outlook on everything. Lord, I pray that we would approach it not with our own agenda uh, or with our own ideas, but that we'd approach it humbly and openly, that we may uh, be transformed by your truth. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble, and he casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He, he hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. 
He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. As we read through, what did you notice? What did you pick out that uh, you'd like to share? Rebecca, yeah. Yes, absolutely. There is a pattern there. We're actually going to see three different, you can call them stanzas or cycles, where there's an invitation to praise, and then there's reasons. Like, here's all the, everything that he's done, everything he is. Very good. Yes? In verses uh, 15 through 19, it talks about the power of his word. He speaks and it happens mm-hmm. in creation. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he's, uh, he's talking specifically about wind and snow and and, and cold and all those foreign concepts, but he, uh, he, his word is, is controlling those things, right? It's his word. Good. What else? Yes? In verse 11, it says that when you hear him and hope in him, it pleases him. It does. He takes pleasure in that. What a, what a comforting thought. We'll look at that more deeply, but so many times we have a wrong idea of what pleases God. You know, I have to do all these things. I've got to achieve all of these things. I've got to look impressive to him. And, and, and that doesn't, God takes no pleasure in that. He takes pleasure in simply those who fear him and who hope in him. And it's a wonderfully comforting thought. Good, what else? Just a couple of observations. You'll see a lot of creation in this psalm. Did you notice that? It points to a lot of what God does with his creation. And you also see a lot of what he does with his people. And, and there's a connection there, I think. But overar- the overarching theme is very clear. We are called to praise the Lord. Let's look a little bit on the structure of this psalm. And I mentioned earlier that there are three cycles to this psalm. The first one, cycle number one of praise, is in verses 1 through 6. The second one is in verses 7 through 11. And the third one is verses 12 through 20. And in each section, you will see an invitation to praise to begin that section. And then you'll see a reason for praise um, following that invitation. Let me show you uh, an example. So the first section, verses 1 through 6, here's the invitation. And then here is the reasons, right? Praise the Lord for it's good and fitting and pleasant. Here's everything he does. Second cycle, verse 7 is the invitation. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. And then 8 through 11 is all of the reasons. He covers the heavens, uh, he provides for the animals, all of those things. Third, third uh, section is the same way. Begins with an invitation, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion, followed by all of the reasons why we should praise the Lord. And so there's the... There's the the overall uh, structure. And I mentioned, you'll notice that in the reasons for praise, he focuses on two things. He focuses, part of his time, he'll focus on God's control over his creation. And then he'll also focus on his care for his people. And I want, as we walk through this, I want you to be looking at what's the connection between his control over creation and his care for his people. Because in each stanza, each cycle, you'll see a connection there. And I want you to look for that, see if you can spot it. But let me show you what I'm talking about here. Here's the first cycle, the invitation, and then the reasons. You see, the, uh, here's his care for his people. That comes first. And then, 
Secondly is the control over his creation. Same thing happens in the second section, only it begins with his control over his creation and then his care for his people in verses 10 and 11. Same thing with the third one. So he's going to, he's going to, uh, to make a connection between these two. And the point for both of these things is these are two very good reasons why we should praise God. We praise him because he is the sovereign creator. He is in control over all of the universe. And also we should praise him because he has great care and concern and love for his people. You could say he's the God of creation. He's the God of the covenant. Um, and, and, and he's going to highlight both of these things. Let's look first of all at this opening invitation. Praise the Lord. And you're going to notice bookends, right? Psalm 147 begins with this invitation and ends with this invitation. Praise the Lord. And in this opening invitation, he gives some, some reasons why it's, it's, we should praise the Lord. There are three, I see. What are those three reasons? Sorry? You heard it? It's good. Good. All right, you found them. It's good, pleasant, and fitting. Let's look at these real quick. The psalmist argues why we should praise the Lord. And the first one, or one of the ones that he points to, is it's appropriate and it's right. It's appropriate and right for us to praise the Lord. And we see that right here. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It would be odd and strange for such a glorious creator to not receive the praise that he is due. And we see in the Psalms especially that all of creation is giving praise to God. And ironically, mankind, who's the apex of his creation, is often the very creation that praises him the least. And, and, and yet, it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's right for those made in his image to praise him and glorify him and worship him. Why should we praise the Lord? Because it's fitting, it's right. Praise God because you should praise God. But secondly... Praise God because it's pleasant and it's satisfying. It's good and it's pleasant. And both of these ideas, good and pleasant, are referring to, I believe, the benefit on the worshiper. That it is a pleasing and satisfying and fulfilling thing to praise God. Praising God brings him joy. And it brings us joy, that there's actually, you could say, personal benefit and enjoyment to praising this glorious God. It's a delight. And sometimes we can, we can have a, a, an overly heightened sense of reverence in which we think that enjoying worship and enjoying praise is a bad thing, right? If you, if you, if you are, are, are having, finding too much happiness and joy and, and fulfillment in worshiping God and praising his name, then, then that's selfish, right? That's not, that's not the case. I mean, as long as you're actually praising God, there's ways that you can be enjoying worship when it's actually, you're worshiping something else other than God. But if you're worshiping God and you're enjoying it, that brings him great glory, right? Just as you talk with a friend or a spouse or someone that you love, and you say, I just enjoy talking to you. I find great fulfillment and pleasure in talking with you. Would your spouse or your friend say, that's very selfish of you, right? <laughs> You should be talking to me because you're supposed to be talking to me. It's right for you to talk to me. No, it's exact opposite. In fact, it brings that other person glory by seeing us enjoy and find pleasure 
in communicating with them. It's the same with God. When we find joy and pleasure in worshiping God, it brings him glory. And so we, should, we would do well to remember both of these reasons. Praise God because we're supposed to praise God. We're designed to praise God, but also praise God because it's really fulfilling. It's really satisfying to praise God. So he, he calls us in this first cycle to praise the Lord. It's good, it's pleasant, it's right, it's fitting. Let's look at the reason for praise. And remember, let's look and see if we can find a connection between his, the control over creation and his care for his people. We see in verses 2 through 3 uh, his care for his people. And we see his care in the verbs. What verbs do we see in verses 2 and 3? Gathers. Heals. Binds up, binds up. Very good. He builds up. He gathers. He heals and binds their wounds. When we see the progression from verse 2 to verse 3... Uh, it, it actually, if you were a Jew reading this, what time in history, in Israel's history, might this be referring to from their perspective? Anyone have any ideas? Yes, return from exile. Can you see that? How he builds up Jerusalem. That might even be referring to you know, Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He's gathering the outcasts of Israel. He, and, then, and then as he gathers them, now he heals them and he built, binds up their wounds. And so we see both an outward and an inward restoration. Here's the outward. He's building up Jerusalem. He's gathering them together. But there's also an inward restoration. This is how much he cares for his people. He not only rebuilds the city and, and gathers them together, but he heals them. He heals each individual heart. It's very much reminiscent of Isaiah I always like referencing Isaiah. I get brownie points with Tom Burkett. <laughs> Isaiah 61, verse 1. There's a thumbs up. Uh, 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. There's this idea right here. Proclaim liberty to the captives in opening the prison of those who are bound. Do you know anywhere else in Scripture where Psalm, Isaiah 61, verse 1 is cited, and by whom? I think I heard it whispered. Jesus. Jesus, yes, it's okay. You can say it louder than that. That's the Sunday school answer. That's the one that you can shout out real confidently. <laughs> Jesus, that's right. Uh, Luke 4, 17 through 21. This is a fascinating passage. Jesus is in the, the tabernacle, and it says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so he points to Isaiah 61, verse 1, and says, that's me. I have fulfilled it. And here, before that ever takes place, we see in similar language what God does toward his people. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. This is the kind of God that he is. This is who Jesus is. He has such a care and compassion for his people. He heals 
and he binds up, and for that, he's worthy to be praised. We should praise him for that, and we should find great fulfillment in praising him for how caring and how loving and how faithful he is to us, both outwardly and inwardly. This is who God is. So we see his care for his people, and then we see his control over creation, and we see that illustrated in the what? The stars. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives them each a name. Here's another Isaiah passage. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Now, we see his control over creation in numbering the stars and giving them all names. How is that attribute of God and his creation connected? Where do you see the connection between that and the care for his people that we just walked through? Where he gathers the outcasts. Okay. Okay. But he knows them well enough to gather. So you see a connection between if he, if he can know the stars, right, and he knows them all by name, will he not also know his people? and count his people, and, and gather them, and know exactly where they are, and know them each by name. What an incredible thought. You can almost say this is an argument from the, uh, what is it, greater to the lesser. If this is true, then this definitely is true. Um, it's estimated, I, I looked this up, I googled it, you know, how many stars are estimated in the universe, and it's one septillion stars. That's one with 24 zeros behind it. And I think that's calculated by the fact that there's on average 100 million stars in a galaxy and then multiply number of galaxies and you get to that crazy number. And those are the ones that we can see. That is very much an estimate. Yes, that's very much an estimate, um, a mathematical equation. Uh, whatever the number is, I mean, God knows it. I mean, just let's just take... 100 million. Let's take the, 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 galaxy, the stars in just one galaxy. He knows them all by name. He numbers all those. But expand that to every star in the universe, and God is in that much control. It's no wonder that we read in verse 5, Great is our Lord, and abundant in power, and his understanding is beyond measure. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's a bit of a wordplay here. Number in verse 4 and measure, in verse 5, are the same Hebrew word. And so, the fact that he can number the stars points to the fact that his understanding is beyond number. It's beyond measure. It's something that humans cannot do. Uh, this is what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. Whenever he's making the promise to Abraham about his offspring, and he brings him outside and says, look toward the heavens, see the number of the stars, if you are able to count them, Right? Implying, no, you can't, but I can. And so God, his understanding is beyond measure. He is great. He is abundant in power. And we see the connection that he who numbers the stars and knows their names is powerful enough to notice you and care for you. He knows your name. And more than that, he heals the brokenhearted. He binds up the wounds. He knows you not just outwardly, but inwardly. How could we ever say, God, God doesn't see me. I, I, God's, he's not noticing me. He's not seeing what I'm going through. 
The God who numbers the stars and knows that my names can't see you? Of course he can. And he can heal you and he can bind up your wounds. In Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2, God says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And here's this phrase, I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. This is the power and the grace of God. He is great. He's abundant in power. And how does God use his immeasurable power? Verse 6. There's a positive and a negative here. He lifts up the humble Wicked, he casts to the ground. Does this remind you of any other verse in Scripture? He exalts, right? Or what's, I I flipped it. It's, he opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Uh, That's James 4, 6, which is a rough quotation of a proverb. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to, to the humble. This is how God is working amongst his people. Those who are humble, those who, those who are lowly, he is lifting up. Those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who are wicked, he is casting down. There's the first section of praise. Praise God. Why? Because of his care and his control and his, and his, and his attention towards you to the, to the finest detail. Any questions, thoughts, or comments on this first section before we move on to the second? Oh, Tom's coming out. I have three Isaiah passages. All right. <laughs> yes. I, I thought it was kind of interesting. You quoted Isaiah also when you went to a psalm on idols. Yeah. Some of his main points in those 40 through 47 type chapters deals with the idols aren't anything. They're vanity. And then part of his argument is exactly what this psalm points out, which is his power. Mm-hmm. He's made creation, and it's just a fraction of his power. And, and you pointed that out really nice with passages in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. He repeats it multiple times. Yeah. And then the other thing that he says is the idols can't tell the future. God can tell the future. So we hit on two key things yeah. in that section. I kind of think it's neat. Yeah. Tom, what are we going to do when you're done with Isaiah and I'm done with the Psalms? It's just... Yeah, we'll have to collaborate. All right. All right. Anything else on this before we move on to the second cycle? Yes? Right, so you're seeing a direct connection in, in, his, in, his, uh, in his dealing with Abraham. He uses his control of creation, specifically the stars, to show him how he's going to show care toward him as, as, as his covenant people. That's, 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 that's really cool. Anything else? All right, let's go on to the second section. Verse 7, we go back to another invitation to praise. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our heart 
to our God, sorry, on the lyre. Sing the Lord with thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is a, is a response. It's giving thanks. So it's almost like on the second round, you've got reason to, be, get, to give thanks to God already. Uh, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Respond to him. And now he's bringing in the musical instruments. Bring mel- make melody to our God on the lyre. I think the lyre is like a, isn't that a type of harp or something like that? Is that right? Okay. The harp. All right. Um, Let's go into this second section and see why we should praise, the reason for praise. Um, control over creation is in, in, is in verse 8 and 9. What do we see God doing with his creation? How would you summarize what we see in verses 8 and 9? He nourishes them, takes care of them. Good. So verse 8 is uh, he's nourishing the, the ground. He is, he is bringing in the clouds. He's preparing rain for the earth, which makes the grass grow on the hills. So he's bringing rain to sustain his planet. And then verse 9, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. Um, have you ever noticed why we see the ravens a lot, like in Job, it's the ravens are pointed out as him providing for the ravens. Anyone know why the ravens are singled out? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'm asking you guys. No, I'm just kidding. I do. I think I know. <laughs> What's that? Maybe they're really common birds. It's kind of connected to that, maybe. They're con- you said they're maybe there's very common. It could be, right? Uh, just as Jesus used the sparrow of the air, a common bird, right? Why would he be so nice to a bird that's not very nice? That's true. <laughs> that's right. One thing I found, and this could be the reason or a reason, um, is, that, is that I guess raven mothers are often known to desert their young. And so they, they, they'll, they'll leave their babies there sometimes. And, uh, and so that's what the young ravens, why does he provide for the young ravens? Well, they're the ones that are left, right? And they, they need help. Um, and so it's actually singling out um, an animal in his animal kingdom who needs particular help that often find themselves in a difficult situation. So this is kind of a cool factoid uh, for you. So we see his control over creation. He's sustaining and providing. All right, so, so that's what I see here. Sustaining or providing for his creation. All right? The very ecosystem, the food chain, everything in nature, producing crops, which then feed the animals. All of that is dependent on God. He is the sustainer of all things. And now, as we move down to verse 10 and 11, we focus on how he's interacting with his people. And let's see if we can figure out the connection here. Uh, Verse 10, he says, His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Now, you may see this phrase here, and like, what in the world? Is that talking about? Um, what's it talking about? NFL. <laughs> the NFL. <laughs> yes, Rick. Mankind admires strength. Right. And animals and they need each other. God doesn't care about that. Right, yeah. So, and again, if we're going to keep in mind the uh, parallelism, the poetic parallelism, this is synonymous parallelism strength of a horse, legs of a man. And so, legs signify strength. So uh, why, why is the horse pointed out? Well, that's kind of like the tank of ancient warfare, right? Um, and so he takes no delight in the strength of a horse, no pleasure in the legs of a man. He doesn't find that impressive. 
Now let's connect it to what we just learned about his care over his creation. What's the connection there? Why does he not find the power and strength of a horse or a man impressive? He made it. He made it. <laughs> right? And what else is he doing? Sustaining it. He's sustaining it, right? He's the one who's actually keeping them alive. And so, and so why in the world would, would, a, would a warrior or any of us, right, take great pride and great pleasure and think that God takes great pride and great pleasure in our strength, in our impressiveness. God looks at that and he's like, I'm not impressed with that at all. That's nothing. I'm the one who's keeping you alive, right? It's foolish that we would think that God would view us in that way. He is the one who's sustaining the horse, sustaining the man. And so, of course, does not, God does not find pleasure in that. But we do see what he does take pleasure in. There's a contrast here. You, say, you see the word pleasure here and the word pleasure here. What he doesn't take pleasure in and what he does take pleasure in. If he doesn't take pleasure in the impressiveness, the strength of mankind, what does he find pleasure in? Those who fear him. Those who hope in his steadfast love. God finds pleasure in that. As one author puts it, um, what pleases the Lord is faith, not self-sufficiency. And, and, and we fall into that. We think that if, if, if I'm self-sufficient enough, I can somehow, I'm proving to God my capability, my usefulness to him. And God looks at that and says, you realize that if it weren't for me giving you your every breath, you wouldn't be able to do anything. I'm not impressed by that. But I take pleasure in those who fear me, who see me correctly, who humble themselves before me, who hope in me. You see pride and humbling. Yes. Pride a horse or a man, strength or whatever, mm -hmm. versus takes pleasure in the ones that are humble and loving. All right, which is echoing what we see up here in verse 6, right? Lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Uh, we see that pride and humility contrasted here in verses 10 and 11. You know, you may wonder, how can I ever please God? Can I do enough? You know, there's actually great comfort and relief in the realization that God is not impressed with you. <laughs> you hear that and like, that sounds like an insult. Why are you insulting me? And that's not an insult. That's, that's actually a wonderful relief. That is a comfort. That God does not look at me and say, wow, I'm impressed, right? Because we know that if, if it were up to us to impress God, God would not say that to any one of us. And we would be striving through all of our life just seeking to impress him and seeking to, to prove to him how impressive we are. What a comfort it is that God says, I'm not, don't worry, I'm not even impressed with that. I'm not impressed in your strength. I'm not impressed in any of that. What I'm impressed in, I take pleasure in, is when you worship me, and you revere me, and you see who, me for who I am, and you take hope, not in your strength, but in my steadfast love. Rick? Maintenance of an attitude of gratitude is what he's looking for in all of us. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the attitude of gratitude, one that simply is your whole mindset, your, the, the direction of your life is saying, God, you are the one who is sovereign. You are powerful. You provide. It's not me. It's not the self-sufficiency. It's the faith, right? Um, We try, to, we try to wow God with our strength. We try to please him. Look at me. 
But when we're told what does please him, when a weak person like you and me fears God and hopes in his love, for someone who says, you're God and I'm not, if for someone who says, I'm not hoping my own strength, in my own strength, I'm hoping in your love, that's what God takes pleasure in. That's what God loves. What a, what a comfort that is. What a, what a relief that is. That all, the only thing that God just takes pleasure in is if you fear him and hope in him. That sounds like a lot more doable of a task than seeking to impress him with our strength. Psalm 20, verse 7, says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that our mindset? Do we take hope? If we look at this word of hope here, where does your hope lie? For many of us, our hope lies in this. Our own strength or the strength of others. You can read in the minor prophets when Israel started to trust in Egypt and trust in these allying nations uh, to deliver them from the Babylonians. And, uh, and, and God says the same thing. Why are you trusting in horses? Why are you trusting in chariots? You can only trust in me. Any thoughts or comments there? Yes, Tom. I'm kind of marveling at the uh, literary transition in verse 10. Mm -hmm. Because as we're going through these three stanzas, there was a clear delineation between uh, two and three, talking about the people and immediately jumps to the stars. Yeah. And I think you're going to show us in uh, verses 17, or, uh, 15 through 18, there's an abrupt jump from the wind and the water, yes. Jacob and Israel specifically. Yes. But I mislabeled this one the first time I was guessing at where you were going to make the break. Uh-huh. Because the beasts of the food are mentioned in verse 9, and then it starts talking about the strength of the horse, uh -huh. which is not the people. Right. Right. And then, it, But it does transition to the legs of a man. Right. Which is kind of man in general. Yeah. And then gets more specific about those whose hearts are yeah, yeah, there's an interesting transition there. transition in this stanza that's not in the other two. Yeah, yeah, so he's saying, he, verse 10, the two lines, the first line and second line, almost seem like they serve like a transition from focus on creation to focus on his people. Um, and, and, and you might even be able to point out the fact that what do we often do? We often hope in creation, we hope in the strength that we provide there rather than our hope in God. Anything else? Justin, I keep on thinking that's a raised hand. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anything else? All right, let's go on to the, to the third cycle. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. And he's calling again for his people, his covenant people, to praise their God, um, to, to rejoice in him. This structure here is a little bit more inconsistent with, with the previous ones because he, he kind of begins with um, how he cares for his people and then he goes toward his creation and then he goes back toward his people. Um, and this one doesn't have as clear of a connection as 15 through 17 does with 18 through 20. So I'll at least highlight Instead of trying to force it into some type of structure, I'll just go ahead and highlight, walk through what verses 13 and 14 are trying to communicate. Um, it, it's, it's quite simple, really. I mean, when you look at just what he's doing here, uh, he is strengthening 
He is blessing. He is making peace. He's filling you with the finest of wheat. Um, this, is, this is security and provision. Uh, much of what we've already kind of rehashed. What is God doing with his people? He's strengthening their city. He's blessing the children within that city. He's making peace in the borders, or on the borders of that city, and filling the city with provision and food. And so we just see this repetition of God's uh, intent provision of his people. As we move ahead to verse 15 through 17, we see his control over creation. And we've already highlighted this out. Uh, But what uh, element of creation do we see uh, emphasized in this passage? We see snow, frost, crystals, cold, right? There's one other theme or idea that we see repeated in these verses as far as what God is doing. Anyone, anyone uh, note, um, oh, verse 18, I'm sorry, is also in the same section of care. Um, he sends out his word and melts them and he makes his wind blow and the waters flow. So it's 15 through 18 is his control over creation. Um, any other themes as far as what God is doing in these verses that you see? How would you describe God in his powerful? What else? Did I heard anyone? Active. Active. Good. What um, instrument does he use? Weather. weather. And how does he control the weather? What does he use to control the weather? His Commands. His word, right? Did you notice that? He sends out his command. His word runs swiftly. He sends out his word. All right, so he is he's making the point that God is creation just simply by the word of his power is controlling the weather. Commanding snow and frost, winds to blow and waters to flow through his word. We read in Hebrews 1.3, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, that Jesus, this is speaking of Jesus here, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That God is upholding the word universe with his word. Jesus is upholding the universe with his word. But yes. He curls the cold. What's that? But he curls the cold. Yes, he does, right. So maybe he's using his arm a little bit there, right? Um, but uh, but uh, most of it is focused on his word. He uses his word. This is how powerful he is. All of nature is sustained by his word. And now look down at his care for his people. And what do you see? What theme? His word. He declares his word, his statutes, and his rules. See his rules again down here as well. So what's the psalmist doing? God is sustaining all of creation by his word. And then when he comes to his special people, he gives his special people his special word. And he brings to them his truth, his revelation. And so we praise God because his word is sustaining all of creation, and we praise him because he has brought to us his spoken word, his revealed word. And for the people of Israel, the, the, the Jews, the nation of Israel, they were, as it says in Romans, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, and they had great uh, advantage in that way. Um, and so and we see in the Old Testament when the nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness into the promised land, Moses and God through Moses tells them a time and time again, this is why you're privileged. It's because you have been entrusted with the word of God. And this is a reason why you should praise him. 
Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14 is, is one such passage. This is the section um, in Israel's history right before they're going into the promised land and God pronounces to them the blesses and the curses. That if you follow my word, there's the blessings. If you reject it, here are the curses. And he follows that up by saying this, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, well, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So the people of Israel, and, and in connection to that, we as Christians who have his complete revealed word, we have his finished scriptures, we have this great privilege of having the word of God given to us. And we see this statement here in verse 20. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 9, Moses tells the people this. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So God told his people, this is why I am giving you my revealed word. I'm sustaining all of creation by the word of my power, but I'm going to give you my revealed word. I'm going to give you my statutes, my laws, so that every other nation when they look at you, will say, what great nation has such a privilege as this, that they have a God so near to them and has directly given to them his statutes and his rules by the word of his power? What a privilege. The same passage goes on to say, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. The nation of Israel didn't do very good, a very good job in showing the other nations how good and perfect and righteous the law of God was. They turned from him. They turned from his law. They turned from his word. And yet still they were privileged with this great opportunity to have the word declared to Jacob, which he didn't do with any other nation. So here's the connection between the creation and his care. The God who upholds the entire universe with his word has brought his word to you. You have it. And we even more so with the completed revelation of scripture in our hands. And we have it in multiple copies in multiple languages. And for that, we should praise him. And we should enjoy praising him for it. So why should we praise the Lord? As we saw in the first verse, praise is both fitting, it's appropriate, it's right, and it's fulfilling, it's satisfying. And so what are we praising God for? Well, we're praising God generally that he's the God of creation. He's the God of the covenant. He's the God who's in control and he's the God who cares. The one who numbers and names the stars we see in the first cycle of praise, 
heals you and binds up your wounds. The one who sustains creation and provides for his creatures takes pleasure in the one who trusts and hopes in him. And in the third cycle of praise, the one who upholds the universe with the word of his power gives his revealed word to his people. And we should praise him for that. That should cause us to want to praise him and glorify him and exalt him. When we realize how privileged we are, how blessed we are, should we not want to praise his name with everything in us? And yet, like the nation of Israel, we often fail like that, fail on that. Like I said at the beginning, his creation, his image, often does the worst job at actually giving him the praise that he deserves. Do we see it as part of our mission, our identity as humans to attribute praise and glory to God with everything in us? Do you see that as your mission, as part of why you were created? I don't know if that often comes to our minds when we think about why I was created. But if, if nothing else, if you don't know what you're going to do next week, if you don't know what job you're going to have, if, you're not gonna, if you don't know what the future holds, and you're thinking, well, how can I obey God? If, if, how can I fulfill my purpose if I don't know all of these pieces that are missing? You can know that you were designed to worship and praise him with everything in you. And in that moment of doubt, in that moment of worry, that moment of fear, if you're praising and worshiping him, you know what you're doing? You're fulfilling your God-given design and purpose. You are doing exactly what God created you to do. And for that, you can praise him at any time. You can praise him through the good times and the bad because this is what God created you for. Praise the Lord. Any thoughts or comments before we wrap wrap this up? All right. Better watch out. I'm going to finish early, which I feel wrong doing. So, uh, <laughs> that's right. Tom. I'll ask one. Is there any significance that it mentions Jacob and then in the next phrase, Israel, does Jacob's name change during his life from Jacob to Israel? I, I don't think that's probably, though I'd probably attribute that to the parallelism the poetry and parallelism. Yeah, so it's just taking the same idea using two different words to communicate it. Jacob is Israel, Israel is Jacob. Um, and so they use that. The is, the real recorded words go through Moses, which is the descendant of Israel, but on behalf of all of the descendants of Israel. Is there any significance there? Say that again, I didn't quite hear that. The first written words are really documented by Moses, right. a descendant of Israel, mm-hmm. but on behalf of the entire nation of Israel, there's significance to Moses not being mentioned here. Or I have not thought about that. I don't know why I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take the next five minutes and just kind of flesh that out. <laughs> I'll have to think about that one. Anything else before we wrap it up? What is yes. Zion? That's, that's the, the holy city, right? So that would be, that's a, that's a name that's often attributed to, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes. I, I realize that. Mm-hmm. Where did it, like, where did it? Where did that come from? Why are they, why are they saying Zion? Oh, you guys are asking a whole bunch of questions. I just don't know the answer. Google it. That's not, that's not. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But someone out there knows. Yes, Tom. Going back to the question that Tom asked, I couldn't hear. Yeah. He said, but it had to do with the fact that Jacob is mentioned and then Israel is mentioned. 
Isaiah does that over and over again, and it had me scratching my head. The only thing I could come up with, which can't say thus saith the Lord, it's more an opinion, is I think he's trying to say from the least godly to the most godly in Israel, because Jacob was a scoundrel, and that's what his name meant. Mm-hmm. And so from those that aren't really all in with God to those that you know, live up to what you know, their patriarch father did once he became Israel. I think he's saying from the least to the highest, this is what I'm doing. But right. that's an opinion. That's right. not something that I can give you chapter. You can also say maybe another possible one is Jacob was kind of the inception of the nation of Israel, and then Israel was what it became. It could be a beginning and end thing. My, I'm, my, my go-to answer would probably be same as this one, because they're both poetry, right? And so they'll both use kind of the same parallelism idea um, that uh, without being able to read too much into it, without being able to give a firm answer, my go-to, my, my fallback answer would be, oh, it's poetry. It's just using two different <laughs> names to communicate the same idea. But that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Yes? Let me take your sentence a step further of what, what the exception was and what it became, yeah. and it's what it is today. That's true. That's true. Yeah, and it shows God's faithfulness uh, throughout throughout the years, throughout the decades. Yes, Paul. What I'm seeing is verse 20 that reminds me of what I read in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a people of his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it started with Israel. But now it's, but we're included. Yeah, this is, he uses language um, that is true of Israel and, and, and then says to his church, and you're his special people as well. Right? Not replacing it, but using the language to show that God has this care for you as well. Yes? I want to go back to the ravens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know what's funny too about the ravens is when God used them to feed, I think, Elijah. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's so not, it's contrary. That's not what ravens do. It's not what they do, but yeah. it shows that it was God that brought them. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. That's pretty cool. Thanks for that tidbit. I like that. <laughs> All right, last one. And we only got two minutes left. We did it, guys. I knew we wouldn't go out earlier. I go. said, what a blessing. We are grafted and Abraham Amen. Well, wonderful, wonderful truths and uh, good reason to praise the Lord. So uh, uh, it should be our prayer that our lives reflect this praise and glory for who God is. Next week will be Psalm 149 and 150 together. And um, there's, uh, there's a lot of tambourines and lutes, so bring your instruments next time. No, <laughs> that's all right, don't do that. We'll, and uh, we'll finish up the book of Psalms. And then, uh, and then we'll jump into the book of Hebrews, and that'll be a lot of fun. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, and uh, we pray that it would not just uh, remain in our heads, but it would uh, reside in our hearts, and that uh, what we know about you would result in a life of praise. Lord, I pray that no matter, uh, no matter what uh, people are going through in this room tonight, as I'm sure many trials and difficulties are represented, they can know that fulfillment and purpose is found in simply attributing to you the praise and glory that you deserve. Uh, help us to, to do what we've call, been called and designed to do, and that's to give you glory.